0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today, as part of our series on Judging Brexit, we have a conversation between Professor Simon Lee and Dr. Leslie Budd from the OU Business School to take a wider view of the ramifications of Brexit for the four nations and their intertwined identities. I hope you like it. Just a reminder, the Law School has launched its celebration of the 50 years of the Open University with our blog, 50 Years of Law. We hope to bring exciting things to you, like the ongoing Judging Brexit series, 50 years of law through the lens of our research passions and legal walks from towns and cities across the country. You can find the link to the blog in the show notes below. Thank you for listening.
1: So Leslie, in citizenship and and governance we've got different disciplines. You're primarily an economist uh, with a background in engineering and an interest in, in all the social sciences I think. I'm a lawyer, I'm interested in the overlap with politics, with uh, religion, with history. Uh, what do you think of the lessons as we come into what is allegedly the last month of this particular Brexit extension?
2: I think I would say, careful what you wish for, <laughs> and I would quote Chow and Inlai's Phrase about the French Revolution. It's too early to tell, <laughs> and the idea that we can just get on with it and leave it completely misunderstands the fundamental issues about what underpins citizenship and governance, which is constitutional and legal and treaties. These things take a long time, and changing your position in a complex history of someone like Europe. And I'm an economist who reads a lot of history is challenging
1: for anyone Mm. so from the point of view of the open university and our shared interest in the different parts of of these islands the republic of ireland northern ireland scotland england and wales it's been an interesting time hasn't it as to whether everybody fully understood what the backstop was why that was significant how it was going to affect not just the border but identities a sense of belonging and the future of the union And that's probably true, I know you're an expert also on uh, the different nations on Scotland. Uh, So would you say that that's been an an outcome of of the saga, has been a greater awareness that these islands are made up of different nations with different political, legal cultures?
2: I think as for the Celtic nations, sadly for the English nation, I think there's been a greater introspection. Mm. Certainly outside London, but London the benefit but suffers also from being a capital city and as daniel defoe said it was the emporium of the whole earth historically and i think that's to do with the greater inequality between the regions and localities and a loss of sense of identity that's almost become visceral and reactionary, going back to a past that never existed. Hmm. I think it's, and sadly, we go back to Tom Nairn's great book, The Breakup of Britain, 1978, where he did warn about devolution, that if we have no deal or hard Brexit or whatever you call it, I think you're going to guarantee another referendum in Scotland, which independence would probably be won. And such a challenge to the Good Friday in um, the whole of Ireland that the only outcome of the DUP's strategy of coalescing with his government is a united Ireland. And that that would actually be damaging to all mm. of us.
1: And you've written about leadership of place uh, and and people and communities in the sense of cities and regions, even within England. But if you look at the UK overall, I think the complexities of of Brexit have made it rather difficult for the media at least to explain who is leading different communities. To take an example, the DUP in Northern Ireland. It's not clear in many media reports that people remember whether or not the DUP ever agreed to the Good Friday Agreement, whether they individually voted to leave or remain, and whether the people of Northern Ireland voted leave or remain. Instead, we get a shorthand, uh, as if Arlene Foster was speaking for everybody in Northern Ireland. Now, having, having taught her when I was lecturing at uh, Queen's University, Belfast, I'm not saying that uh, she's doing anything wrong, but nobody from Northern Ireland would think that any one person speaks for all the people there.
2: No, and when I was Special Economic Advisor to one of the committees in Northern Ireland Assembly, the DUP, are, as I said, are a complex and interesting bunch uh, who want to look after their constituency, but it's a complex constituency like the rest. I think what's interesting is how the suspension of the Assembly has meant that the Alliance and s- certain parts of the SDLP and hmm. maybe the Ulster Unionists have coalesced around a more, if you like, um, all-Ireland or Northern Ireland position but i think it's also unfortunate that the historical b- memory of the whole of ireland mm. is lost particularly in westminster and i think a lot of for the con- conservative the unionist party i think they're less interested in the union and the brexit party is certainly not interested in the
1: union yeah i think one one thing that the rest of the united kingdom could take from this saga is beginning to understand to use your word how visceral uh, identities were in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, because uh, I've talked about the idea of a resentful belonging or a precarious belonging, that a minority often feels a sense of resentment, even if they accept some of the benefits of living or in and belonging to a state. And sometimes the majority is worried that it's going to lose its majority. Now, that was perhaps difficult to understand from the perspective of, say, the southeast of England, where, where I'm from. Uh, when it was just Northern Ireland and the Troubles. But now almost everybody can understand that if you voted leave, you might now be upset uh, that it hasn't happened. But if you voted remain, you're you're upset that other people voted leave and so on. And I, I guess that those tensions are going to persist, whatever actually happens with Brexit on the 31st of October or at any other point.
2: Yes, and we'll take some time to go over. I think because... <clears throat> and it's not a, it's a problem of, I think, many Western societies, we look in America, but elsewhere in Europe, where the rise of populism is, I think, where the political elites have forgotten the meaning of citizenship and governance, yeah. accountability, transparency. But the idea of social solidarity and identity is always multiple. I mean, a Scottish mm. friend of mine calls me a cockney sweaty sock. Because <laughs> I'm from London, but also I'm half Scottish, so I have, like many people. Yes. But I think the danger of of the way in which Brexit has been handled, both uh, in terms of its its impact on what we call educational citizenship, mm. has actually made, I said, made people more introspective and look for singular identities, which mm. actually often don't exist. Yeah. And you can't blame people. And frankly, I, I mean, I would never call anyone who, who voted leave in the referendum the stupids. I would call a lot of the journalists, who are not really journalists, the stupids, because the way in which they communicate ignorance, not only ab- about Brexit, but how the modern world works mm. and what impact that does have on citizens and their governments.
1: Which takes me, I think, to, uh, to my own subject of law. And I'm wondering how somebody who's interested in law... comes from a wider perspective feels about the courts taking a bigger role in our constitution our governance our citizenship uh, because that seems to be the the outcome of the miller cases Uh, and um, even as, as we're talking there's an appeal in in yet another scottish case so do you resent that do you admire it do you think that law has a distinctive contribution to make or is it getting above itself
2: no, I mean I think don't. I mean, you know, basically, if you look at our history, it's put in in the past. It's only Danish and then French the Plantagenets, and the American Constitution was based on Montesquieu, who was widely admired on the division of powers. Mm. So any democratic society is on a balance between the executive, the legislature, and the judiciary, and the judiciary is, if you like, the uh, decider of last resort in association. Mm. The idea you can put people against the law is what is where you end up in authoritarianism and totalitarianism and we've been very fortunate in this country for a long time if you like to live in a kind of political plateau i know we've you know in the 20th century had two world wars but the prosperity the stability we've had for 70 years and the danger is that is actually put at risk
1: i've been looking at um, my old constitutional law textbooks Essays in Constitutional Law from when I was a student in the 1970s. This is a book from before I was born, in the the 1950s, the Queen's Government. Uh, And in in none of these books can I find some of the principles which the Supreme Court says are there in in its uh, recent judgment. So things are definitely changing. And a thing which interested me in the judgment of the Supreme Court was this phrase, technically the result of the referendum was not legally binding, but the government had pledged to honour the result and has since been treated as politically and democratically binding. Successive governments and parliament have acted on that basis. Well, I'm not sure. It seems to me that the Liberal Democrats, for instance, don't accept um, the result of the referendum or the fact that the referendum's significant. But do you feel that referendums have become part of the constitution that is a solution or a cause of further problems?
2: I think they're dangerous referendum um popular you know and this is the issue about people versus parliament parliament are represent the people they're representatives they're not agents (coughs) and i think and if referendums were to do with a change in the constitutional position so for example if the lisbon treaty or the Maastricht treaty had got a referenda because you wanted to sound out what the public response was, and use the referendum to educate them as they did in France and they did in Ireland. That's another thing. But using... And if referenda... If we move towards a more written constitution where we don't have to work so much on on interpretation, that could be part of the decision-making. But then I think you might have to go back to the Australian system, is where as part of your citizenship it's compulsory for you to vote. Mm. Because don't forget, there's only 37% of the electorate. So you can't guess which way those people have got and with fuller information. And I remember when I worked in Switzerland many years ago, a popular referendum. One was to get rid of all immigrants, which mm. would have collapsed the Swiss economy. If they got enough votes, that would go to a referendum. They didn't get enough votes. Yes. But these simple binary choices in complex constitution and public policy issues um, is, is in the absence of what we call educational citizenship, where the citizenship is much more informed about the way they're governed, that's a different story.
1: And, and finally, from my point of view, uh, I, I've emphasised the significance of reasons in the law. Politicians are elected, so they've got a legitimacy. But the courts depend on giving reasons in public, having heard arguments from, from both sides or all sides. An interesting development is this unanimous judgment of eleven judges is very powerful because it's unanimous. Yes. But then people begin to think, well, did they really agree? What are their real reasons? And have they gone to a level of abstraction in order to conceal their disagreements? So I guess my final question is, do you think that it will be the courts or parliament or the executive who will ultimately resolve this brexit issue if it ever is resolved
2: that's the 64 billion <laughs> question i i think you have to see the judges the supreme court it's like in in federal systems you always have a constitutional court it's where you test reason mm. and you test whether Our elected representatives are genuinely trustees, because trusteeship is a a crucial part of citizenship. And we have general elections. I don't like the fixed-term parliament Mm. because about legitimacy and accountability. But general elections also test that. But you you do need some... Like a central bank is the lender of the last resort. Mm. You need some... Reasoners of last resort in these kind of challenges because again they could be challenged again, and again, a democratic society they are open to challenge. Yes, and yes, and I think that's the important point.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. As ever, you can find out more about us on the law school's website. Don't forget about our celebration of the OU's 50th birthday. Link in the show notes below. The music in the background is Dirty Mac by Endless Love. Take care and hope to see you again.